I think it's funny when I get queer baited, <laughs> and I would laugh if I got queer baited on the show critiquing, <laughs> like, how religion fucks everybody up. Hi, I'm Abby. Hi, I'm Darby. And welcome to Sacrilegiosity. On today's episode of Sacrilegiosity, our very first episode, um, very first, very first. <laughs> the premiere, if you will, we are doing the Righteous Gemstones. And this is in part because I just binge watched it, so it's on my brain. And in part because it's kind of low-hanging fruit. What Gemstones is doing is pretty much in line with what we're going to be talking about, but it's very like to the point with it. There's some ideas in the episode ideas list that really are a stretch that are going to need a <laughs> lot of explanation before it becomes clear why we're doing this on a podcast that's about religion and media, but not this one because it's baked in the themes. <laughs> yes. The whole show is poking fun of rich American evangelical Christians, especially Southern and the low-key Baptist in the way that like megachurches are and um celebrity and like celebrity megachurches. And yeah, they it's ridiculous and fun and over the top and it's really not a comedy style honestly that I usually enjoy, but it just like really works. Yeah. This is like succession for people who had a very specific upbringing, <laughs> like us. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess spoilers, if that's something you're worried about, I'm sure we'll be discussing spoilers. And if you're not super familiar with Righteous Gemstones, there's two seasons. I think the second season just came out in January this year. Yes, it just it just recently wrapped up second season. So the first season covers a blackmail, like, sex tape scandal. Um, and then the second season has to do with a lot of murder. Lots of murder. <laughs> Lots of murder. <laughs> and covering that up. And other celebrity, um, other celebrity pastors, a lot of wealth, and Christian timeshares. So it's... <laughs> Yeah, they expand the universe quite a bit in season two. I was really surprised by some of the people they brought on. Yeah, it was um, Joe Jonas makes an appearance in season two, which was a fun surprise. He has a couple featured cameo episodes <laughs> in connection with a character played by Eric Andre, of all people. Yes. <laughs> what major themes really stood out to you um, through the seasons? <clears throat> I um as as the as the English degree haver, I consider myself an expert in themes. And um I th I have this theory about every single show that makes religion a big part of what it does. And this is how I connect it to things that aren't explicitly religious but have like religious connotations in my mind. If you are doing religious themes in your show, it's always going to be about fathers in the end. <laughs> like you can't you can't escape the the tyranny, the craving of love from the father. I I don't mean to sound super Freudian here. I'm just <laughs> I don't think that Freud was right. I think that people believing that Freud was right makes Freud manifest in things. So <laughs> the, 
that's that's what I'm getting a lot of from gemstones because it is succession for people who grew up religious like very specifically because it is about fathers it's about how we can't escape the patterns set by our families and it takes a lot of work to heal the damage done by fathers mm-hmm. and fathers will hold a sway over our lives even when we try to escape them there's all these moments of characters in the righteous gemstones trying to defy their fathers prove themselves to their fathers escape the influence of their fathers and failing to do so in various ways Mm -hmm. so it's the inevitability of having to confront this is what makes up my family and myself to varying degrees of you know (laughs) to varying degrees of what makes me not as distinct as an individual person. Yeah. And for those unfamiliar, I guess I'll just briefly outline all the fathers in this show. So you have Roy Gemstone, who's the dad of Eli Gemstone, who started the whole gemstone conglomerate. I don't even know. But he was, um, Eli was a televangelist turned mega pastor slash continues to be a televangelist. And Eli has two sons and one daughter. So there you have another father-son relationship. One of the sons Mm -hmm. has a number of children. Um, That's Jesse. Jesse has like four kids, I think. Or maybe just three. Just three kids. It's three. Yeah. It's three. Three sons. Three sons. And there's some dynamics there, more father-son relationships. Later, we meet baby Billy. And baby Billy is a father and also becomes a father. He has a storyline really wrestling with that. And then we have a father figure um, of Eli's from his when he was a young man. I'm forgetting the guy's name. The wrestling guy. There was Junior, who's the same age, roughly the same age as Eli. Junior's actual right. father. And then there's, you know, family lineage there. Anyway, there's lots of fathers in this show. Is the point. It's lousy with fathers. <laughs> lousy with fathers. There's so many. It's very much a show about this is what you inherit from your family and specifically from your father. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's the contrast influence of what does mom do in all of this? But the mom of our main cast of characters is not alive anymore when the show picks up you see her like in flashbacks and stuff but she no longer has the same ability to exert direct influence on the family because she's dead so it's just the image of mother more so that's influencing everybody else it's what role she played and now there's a void and they're seeing all the ways that she managed to keep them sane and keep them together and they're really like missing that kind of maintenance in the family now you see that among the main like four gemstones a lot it's the source of most of the conflict in the show i would say yeah the mother um isn't like present as a character in that way but is there at all times they go and talk to a fountain of her pretty frequently it's a good stand-in and baby billy will hallucinate her sometimes Like, having visions of his sister. I love the character Baby Billy. His The actor's name is Walton Goggins, which oh my God. is so good. I love that's That's a name. It's such a name. Um, and I like Baby Billy as a character. 
I also think he looks like Link Neal from Mythicality in like 30 years. If anyone is familiar. <laughs> You're right. right? <laughs> it is like so it's really funny. That's like what I could think about like 90% of the time when uh, Baby Billy was on screen. <laughs> but <laughs> you know when I was when I was rewatching for this and catching up on episodes I kept looking at him like he looks like a guy. <laughs> But I couldn't place the name. He looks like Link Neal of Good Mythical Morning. He does! <laughs> they have the same hair! They do. <laughs> I think that talking about some moments that, like, something I loved about this show is that it was so, so clearly created by somebody who, with, like, intense, intimate knowledge of this whole thing. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Because it wasn't even in just the, like, bigger, like, everyone kind of knows how ridiculous, like, big mega church pastors can be. Everyone kind of knows that bit. But it was in the littlest things. Like, in the very first episode, when they are walking off the plane, uh, the, the plane called the Holy Spirit. Um, they, got, they got three planes. They got three planes. <laughs> Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. <laughs> first of all. <laughs> um, and... Kelvin is talking, and then Kelvin is dressed in a white v-neck, like three necklaces. His hair is ridiculous. I think he has his ears pierced, sunglasses, and then he's like, I'm the worship minister and youth pastor, and I laughed so hard in my apartment by myself. Like, baby, you didn't even have to say (laughs) it. We knew. You introduced yourself when you walked in the room. It was... (laughs) I think he might be my favorite character. I kind of love Kelvin. I I love (laughs) Kelvin so much. One thing that I love about Kelvin is that he's like earnest. He's very earnest in everything he does. And painfully earnest. Yeah. And it's like the other characters, like like his siblings, like Jesse and Judy, both kind of know what's up with the church. They're both like, yeah, this is about power and wealth and all that. Like, you know, they'll talk about God, but they, they kind of know, you know, like they have a better understanding about what's up with that. But I think Kelvin is just very earnest and like, this is about God and God right. gives us the power and he wants to be Jesus so bad. He's not playing the game in the same way that the others are. No, Like he obviously has, like they all have so many problems. Oh, so many, so problems. many problems. But he is like... On his own, like, the most redeemable character um, because of that earnestness. And since we're talking about Kelvin, I also want to talk about Keith. Because- <laughs> okay, actually, I lied. Keith is my real favorite character. I love Keith. Beautiful baby boy Keith. <laughs> I love him. I think that the dynamic that Keith and Kelvin have is... I mean, it's bad, but... <laughs> it, it's- I mean, it's bad, but, like... It's it's also the fundamental issue of their relationship that I, I think changes, starts to change in season two, is that, like, Keith sees Kelvin as his savior, and Kelvin is like, you are my success story. And they're friends, but then there's this, like, both of them kind of dehumanizing the other 
in these ways. Yeah. And so they have this like really imbalanced relationship. And in season two, and I think it's when Keith like steps up to try to bear the cross and Kelvin's weird cult, that that really shifts and their relationship starts to become more equal and you start to see Keith become more incorporated as part of the family. And I hope that in season three, they continue down that track and that they can have a healthier friendship. And hopefully they discover some more things about their friendship, because if they can work through those issues, they are boyfriends. (laughs) Like, that's... That is very clearly and obviously the direction that they're being pushed. And... I just, I think it's funny when I get queer baited, <laughs> and I would laugh if I got queer baited on the show critiquing, <laughs> like, how religion fucks everybody up. Yeah. I would laugh really hard, but <laughs> also, if they decided to manifest, what would what would the ship name even be? Keefin? Keefin? I don't like no, that. No, that's bad. Cleef? That doesn't make sense. Kelvy. Kelvy. <laughs> That's even worse. <laughs> if, <laughs> if they if they decide to make it manifest, then you know, that would be a fun that would be a fun character arc for both of them to have. Yes. I would love that character arc for Kelvin because yes. he I mean he already gets digs about be about like Keith being his boyfriend. That's like established in season one. Everyone makes right. fun of him from it. A like 15 year old girl <laughs> makes fun of him for it. That's not in his family. Like everyone kind of knows this. And right. Like, and he gets called gay by his siblings. Um, and he talks about how he's like voluntarily celibate, which packs a lot oh, if you baby. are like reading this through a queer lens, is like loaded and that's a throwaway line and that's one of the things like in this show is there's so many little throwaway lines that like hold so much and that's one of them (laughs) when like kelvin is like oh you know he took a vow of celibacy and you're like hold on that is like so many layers of your character and they just move on from that there was one toward the end of season two that really killed me it was it really was just like a one-off joke that got no like moment of pause to land but they say what are you gonna go smother him with his my pillow yes! i lost my shit <laughs> me too i have that in my show notes because that was like that line ran through my head for like 24 hours afterwards it was beautifully it was so done <laughs> like like you know that they got that my pillow directly from um, Michael, what's his name? The My Pillow guy, <laughs> Michael J. Lindell. They, God. Like, that was a personal gift to Eli from Michael J. Lindell because their church probably flies American flags year round and says the Pledge of Allegiance and all voted for Trump. None of them wore masks during COVID. They established that like beginning of season two. <laughs> Oh, yeah. They do reference COVID a little bit in season two. And they were like, okay, because of the timeline, we're just going to establish, of course, this church did not give a shit. Like, they just went on with their Why would they? Their demographic has no reason to. No. So circling back to sexual repression, 
I want to talk about Judy. Judy. Judy took a while to warm up to me, like for me to warm up to her, like as a character. But something that I really love about her portrayal is like, I think season one does this especially well, is highlighting how women in these environments um, often have just like the carrot dangling right in front of them. And but there's just like always something more to prove because she's just like battling to be seen publicly and alongside like her dad, the father issues of it all and wants approval from her dad so bad. But um, her immaturity is what keeps her from that. And he like kind of cites her immaturity. But her brothers are just as immature, if not more so than her. And it doesn't keep them from like being in the public eye, you know, and that just dynamic just feels so authentic to women in these spaces and how like she's not seen as a real adult because she's not married and isn't seen as having a real family when she is married because she's childless and she gets like digs for both of those things right yeah so judy for as like wild and kind of off-putting as her character is i think highlights those things super well if you're if you're considering this show and you're really passionate about let women be assholes, Judy is your girl. Like, yes, <laughs> she's the worst, but she's a really complex, well-written character and is also still the worst in ways where it's like she feels deeply understood by the other writers and not just... We're going to make her crazy and a bitch because women are crazy bitches. It's like she is a crazy bitch, but like there's a lot of reasons behind that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's it's not it's not misogyny reasons like from the writer's room. It's misogyny reasons in the story. And also she in and of herself is crazy and a total bitch. (laughs) (laughs) And we love that for her. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that like her... The portrayal of her sexuality is fascinating. And it's Mm -hmm. not like, it's very present in pretty much any scene that she's in, but it's not like fully explored in the dialogue. The effects of purity culture on her are so present. And I think that they do this in such a like nuanced way because she's a woman in her 30s. And she, in the first season, is unmarried, but her boyfriend basically lives with her. But she still tries to hide her boyfriend from her dad when he's over. And she's like, yeah, she's a woman in her 30s. Like, her family kind of digs at her or, like, side-eyes her because they know that they're, like, cohabitating. 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 God, God, the word even sounds dirty. Like, ooh, cohabitating. And then, in season one, you really... In, in my notes, I say you get the impression that she's been around the block. Like, she, you, you, <laughs> you get the impression that she's like really experienced and that this isn't her first rodeo with a serious boyfriend um, or casual boyfriends. And somewhere in season two, I think toward the end, you learn that like that kind of aggressiveness is a cover for insecurity that she isn't experienced. And like, BJ was her first serious boyfriend and first sexual partner, and she didn't even tell him that. And that this is, like, a big insecurity of hers. And from this, like, really oppressive environment where she doesn't get to talk about sexuality. And when you're repressed and you're repressed for that long, it comes out in really weird ways. And that's Judy. (laughs) 
She is so horny in such a weird way. So, yes. Very (laughs) horny. Very weird about it. And that was true when she was a kid. You get these flashbacks and she just like says off the wall shit and you're like, you need to talk to someone. But she can't because like no one wants to talk to their kids about that. Mm -hmm. In season one, I think it's season, no, it's season two because Gideon's around. When the youngest kid, the youngest boy in the Jesse gemstone line starts masturbating all over the place. (laughs) And it's like... The parents don't want to address it. No. So they send the older brother in to do it. Which is like, you don't want your older brother talking to you about this. It's like, it's not like it's less painful with your parents, but like, your adult older brother addressing this with you? Like, just what gets deemed appropriate when the environment is that repressive? It just like... Yeah. These are situations of, like, active endangerment sometimes, what they wind up doing, like, when Calvin and Keith kind of accept that they want to be youth pastors, they're not, like, rejecting that path anymore, like, Mm -hmm. they're happy doing it and they're good at it. It's like, oh my god, this is gonna get really awkward really fast. Oh, man. I, I, oh, I have some thoughts about them and youth pastoring, but... I want to talk, just like circle back briefly to when Jesse, when it doesn't work for the adult older son to try to talk to his younger brother about like, hey, be low key and don't leave your gross underwear all over the house. Um, Isn't able to do that, understandably. The dad does. And the dad's explanation (laughs) was when you masturbate, your whole dead family all of your ancestors watch you (laughs) and they're sad and you are making grandma cry (laughs) and you know that would be funny except i feel like i there are people who are taught that (laughs) like i've heard people talk about being taught that almost verbatim like it was one of those moments in the show where you're like they didn't even have to exaggerate this. They just, like, took somebody's, like, birds and bees speech and put it on paper, like, which is really sad. But it was very funny. And I loved Gideon's reaction because he was just, like, and just, like, the, the face. This is a podcast. You can't see my face. Um, but... just, just trust that we're making the face. Yeah. You can hear it. <laughs> through the wires just a look of like both perplexed like perplexed and also sad because he knows that this is just being handed back down to his little brother one of those yeah one of those moments in this really ridiculous show where you're like ah shit like that's a little bit too familiar (laughs) yeah fathers and patterns man that is the bread and butter of this show and of lots of religious shows. Damn. Damn. Because it all goes back to God the Father, doesn't it? Yes. God the Father. God the Father. And God being a man in this situation plays so much into like the way that Jesse acts. Jesse especially. Oh um, my god. Jesse has such a complex. He has such yes. a complex. And it's like... I wrote a paper on this in college, sort of, and 
this idea that when like God is imagined as a father, then like the way that men are then treated in that uh, are then treated in these like religious settings where God is like unequivocally man is like all messed up and the concept of masculinity and whatever cultural masculinity is then projected onto being like godly. And so Jesse has this whole complex about being a masculine guy and needing to be masculine and protect his family and having to be tough and his wife can't upstage him. And this is all like what God calls men to do. It's very heavy handed in the show about how much of a complex Jesse has about being a man. But the way that that plays out is just one of those like nuances in the show that's I think is just so well done and very accurate to what actually happens in churches. God, like when you're watching this and you've been deeply entrenched in church drama for much of your life and you know how these things go, it's just like doubly painful. Yeah, like (laughs) if we're going to get a little serious about it for a minute, every time you had a collection of church wives on that screen, it made me like... I could laugh at it, but it also made me so sad because it was so familiar. Where, like, you have the pastor's, um, in this setting, it's the pastor's wife, but you could kind of put in how it's often the pastor's wife, but it's also just whatever influential woman in the church. It could be a number of people. Um, sort of managing the comments and turning things around. So it's like, oh, we can, like, critique things but we have to be careful and not step on toes and we have to like manage the narrative. And so like very specifically when Amber is kind of talking down Monica, when Monica finds these really graphic emails that Chad sent to, to his friends, which included Jesse and all of the husbands of these wives who are gathering and they're really like incriminating emails. And Amber is like, well, we can't be accusing our husbands of that. And don't you think you're overreacting? And I'm sure there's an explanation. And like all of these things that are just like gaslighting what Monica knows to be true because divorce isn't an option and how clear that's like made. And the marriage saving scene with Jesse and Amber and Chad and Monica, marriage saving in quotes because they do end up getting divorced. Um, predictably but when they're like oh when they go to pray with them and be like this is something to overcome and it was a joke and here's the explanation and let's pray together and they use the bible verses in the prayer about like don't let man separate what god has brought together and let husbands love their wives as they love their own body or something like that and like these all of these things in the prayer and then Jesse and Amber get into the car and they're like we just saved a marriage and are like so proud (laughs) like that scene made me so sad because I was thinking about how in a whole thing that happened at my home church where there was a woman leaving her like physically and emotionally abusive husband and the pastor and his wife offered something like childcare and to take them on a double date to Red Robins to fix things. <laughs> and that was their solution was to get a burger and a date night and smooth things over and pray together. And that's just like, 
it was one of those scenes where I'm like, man, they really, they really know this environment. They like really know yeah. it. It's part of what makes it land so effectively is it is, mm-hmm. it is definitely headed up by people who have these kind of experiences in their own histories mm-hmm. to draw upon. Yeah. What this show does so well is taking these very real things and portraying them pretty accurately to like what happens like the prayer scene like the masturbation talk and some others that are along those lines and then playing out the damage that causes in exaggerated ways so that's like it's obvious but those things like actually happen and actually cause very real damage right Jesse and Amber's whole dynamic really shifts in an interesting way during season two. Mm-hmm. That it's like after the main plot of season one, you're really happy to watch Amber and the other like Deacon's wives kind of get their moments because mm-hmm. they really do kind of get their moments. But ultimately, a lot like even the marriages that do end don't necessarily like stay ended or the marriages that got fractured horribly by the blackmail plot don't necessarily grow or advance that much past it they just kind of find a new thing to bond over and make that their focus Mm -hmm. instead of like actually repairing some of the damage done and you see that with all the characters in the show. Like, they're all terrible people. This is a comedy about a bunch of terrible people being terrible. Mm-hmm. And where they have moments of character growth, it tends to be temporary. Or the what they learn from that, they don't really fully absorb the lesson from that and the other parts of their personality. Mm-hmm. And by the end of season two, you, they've clearly done a lot of work. And they've learned how to kind of hang together as a family in much more obvious ways, but their problems just become more external in a lot of episodes. It's not necessarily that they've done all of the work to get there, but you do still see some healing in the family by the very end of season two, which Mm -hmm. gives you a bit of hope, but ultimately these characters are still horribly immature with like so much just, selfish impulse that they have no desire to rein in it's just like (laughs) (laughs) they're they they haven't grown up past being teenagers in some ways especially when it's just the siblings all together yeah they're the worst (laughs) (laughs) okay want to talk about the father in all of this the father big daddy gemstone (laughs) dr eli gemstone (laughs) (laughs) my first question um is where is his doctorate from where did he get his doctorate (laughs) (laughs) what's it in (laughs) i so my thing is they make a point of calling him doctor And my working theory is that I think it's a sham and I don't think he has a doctorate. Oh, absolutely not. No, because I feel 
I think it was somewhere in season two. There's like some very pointed scenes where the Dr. Gemstone is very intentional. And I know that there have been like in real life scandals along those lines of like big preachers or pastors or whatever calling themselves doctors. And they either just don't have a doctorate or they kind of have an honorary doctorate or it's like a really sham thing. And I think that that's what Dr. Eli Gemstone has. I was really waiting in all of season two for that shoe to drop and it didn't. But season three, maybe we'll find out where Dr. Eli Gemstone went to school. (laughs) Absolutely. That is not a real doctorate. That man did not do a graduate program. Not that he's not intelligent exactly, but I just don't buy it. He's been too busy building his empire to have time for all that something about every character that he plays i just like he plays my grandfather in every movie he's ever been in so maybe maybe that's why i'm kind of fond of eli also just by default he's the most mature character of all of them because he literally has to be But, you know, he clearly still has a lot of work to do on himself. Otherwise, he wouldn't be in this show. But (laughs) And a lot of his own selfishness is the root of many of the family's problems. Like, the ways that you see what he models for the kids and the way that the kids interpret it, it's like, oh my god. Like, how, how far back does it really even go? Yeah. And you see some of the interactions that he has with his own father in some of the in some of the flashback episodes and scenes where it's like, wow, this this is generational trauma. This is like religious trauma to some extent. It's like there's a lot. Yeah. Like season two is so fun because you like you, you learn that he has a dark past beyond just being kind of a sleazy megachurch pastor who does some skeevy shit to build his success. And you're like, oh, damn. And like his past comes back to haunt him in some very real ways, which is Mm -hmm. super fun to watch. But like his own understanding of masculinity, how to model it, the ways that Jesse tries to internalize it in the ways that Kelvin can't operate in the same way, but mm-hmm. wants to aspire to that. That's a lot of what's in season two where all the murders happen. Yes. <laughs> I I think the clearest way or the most direct way, I guess, the most direct way they sort of show that generational trauma and being passed through the father's is through physical discipline, where you sort of see that, like, the great-grandfather Roy, that was Roy, um, there's allusions to how he would hit Eli, and Eli would hit his kids as punishment, specifically his sons, and would smack them as punishment, and then Jesse would, um, you have some scenes of Jesse hitting his kids, and that, like, that's a very direct way you see that sort of generational trauma played out. Um, but you mentioned something very interesting that I hadn't connected the dots with before, which is Kelvin. And Kelvin only really makes sense read through a queer lens, um, not being able to achieve 
that ideal of like masculinity, but he tries so hard to. And one and the way that he tries that and tries to seek his dad's approval is through the God Squad. <laughs> <laughs> the God Squad was a really unexpected perk of the show. <laughs> I like it's my show notes um say the strong men exclamation points the strong men <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah unexpected but on point um so the god squad in the show is a, a bodybuilding ministry that kelvin starts um and it is gathering all of these men together and they exercise and they keep their bodies healthy in the name of the lord and <laughs> and they and they have to like wear fashionably like slouchy pants while they do it and they have to live in yurts and farm their own vegetables with their beautiful oiled bodies glistening in the sun. This is really important for God. Yes. They, like, something, okay, another subtlety that I love that's tied into this is not only the whole, like, strong men trying to achieve masculinity, this being based off of a thing that kind of actually happened in the power team that still exists, which is bodybuilders for God. Which I'm pretty sure, I, I'm pretty sure the power team went to my high school when I was in high school. I have vague oh memories of, like, guys lifting in our school auditorium. I hope I'm not hallucinating that. I feel like I have seen the power team or a version of them in real life. I also maybe saw a glimpse and then like ran away. I often was like elsewhere during school assembly. So, <laughs> um, but the God squad, oh, the like health and wellness gospel yes. being incorporated in that brilliant move. These like little, again, just like throwaway lines about like, I mean, the obvious body is our temple, but about how what we about how what you eat is a reflection of God and like your body being healthy is a reflection of God's like blessing in your life. And this like clean eating being necessary, tilling the land. This just, yeah, the health and wealth gospel of it all. And then you get the other side of that with baby Billy selling his health elixirs. Yes. Toward the very end. Yes. <laughs> like, this will cure the COVID. Like, okay. <laughs> He's selling coconut water as cure-all hand sanitizer, <laughs> but he and Kelvin are both ascribing to the same vague theology mm -hmm. of God will keep you healthy. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And with the God Squad, um, such a good name. Such a good name. <laughs> like, props to Kelvin for that. <laughs> There's 100% at least like 100 God Squad youth groups out in America, I'm sure. I'm positive of Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Like youth groups, small groups. It's such a good name. Yeah, with the God Squad and this like tie in to masculinity and having to be powerful men for God, and in Kelvin's case, a powerful strong man for his father, really. I mean, what more is there to say about that? Like, he's not he's not able to achieve the same, like, sheer, you know, 
tone and power of these guys that he's kind of taken under his wing, but he's mentoring them. He's whipping them into shape and he is their leader. And that's how he's trying to reach for this masculinity that he can't seem to actually obtain for himself. If he can mm-hmm. prove that he can be in charge of these guys, then that's almost the same thing as being these guys. And there's a whole plot arc where there's a power struggle within his weird little cult, and he has to reestablish his authority through, you know, various chests of strength. And Keith comes to his rescue, which really is the moment that there the power imbalance starts to like shift a little bit more. Um, right. It's still present, but that is really a defining moment where I think Kelvin stops seeing Keith as his project and Keith sees Kelvin a little bit less as his savior and that starts to be more of a balanced relationship. You know who mirrors that relationship? Who? <laughs> the way <laughs> I'm so sorry. The the way that like they're reinterpreting the roles that they have in their relationship really closely parallels the way that um, Jesse and Amber have to recontextualize their relationship because Ah. both of them start seeing each other in new ways through trying to arrange a power grab in their own, like their own areas of life. Yes, you're so right. Because Keith is like, he's doing, he's doing the royal advisor kind of thing to Calvin, mm-hmm. especially like you know in the in the episodes right after um, Eli lashes out against Calvin for like you know defying him and breaks his thumbs. So there's that. Like this is the <laughs> first time he's like physically injured his son for standing up to him since he was like actually a child and Calvin takes it really hard so like in those like moments where Calvin's been emasculated by his father and like he's had his authority challenged by the guys that he's supposed to be in charge of Keith is like trying to manage you know the PR, he's trying to make sure that the authority of his man is not being questioned. When called to do so, he stands up for him. Yeah, and he takes care of him. That's really what makes me think they might actually do it because that parallel is so close. And I know they know because they had so many more reasons for them to be naked around each other this season. (laughs) (laughs) And that is played for laughs. But also, is it, though? <laughs> I mean, those scenes where, like, Kelvin is just, like, literally, like, bare-ass naked. Butt-ass naked. <laughs> is, like, it's funny, but there's also a tension there. You're like, this is uncomfortable, but they are also just so close to each other's faces. <laughs> like, it's not it's played powerful. for laughs. Yes, it's not played for laughs and they're like, oh, LOL, like, being gay is funny. It's, like... It's funny because anybody putting on someone else's underwear is funny. <laughs> Are we about to kiss right now? <laughs> <laughs> He's so tender with him, too. He's so just... tender. Aw. Keith is amazing. Like, his whole... Okay, if we are jumping on the Kelvin Keith conspiracy train, then I mm-hmm. think that 
Keith has already accepted his own feelings in his heart, but it's going to take Kelvin some time. But Keith's going to be there to support him <laughs> the whole time because that's where he's always been. <laughs> I, man, if this show does the queer baiting, I might actually be mad. <laughs> but it would be so funny if they did. Oh, it'd be so funny. <laughs> I, <laughs> I think one more thing I want to uh, touch on with the God Squad is that it's not only this like weird powerlifting thing it's like straight up a cult um where they have like rituals and they have like these punishment cycles and i and it's one of those it's another plot point of this show where it's like if this wasn't a thing that like actually happens on a regular basis this would be too ridiculous to believe but it's yeah one of those moments where it's like yeah all of the like Things around it seem really grandiose and are, like, funny in their absurdity. But, like, at its heart is, like, this is actually quite serious and a real problem in ministries that get started and then turn into cults. um, Or turn into, like, these miniature cult-like settings of, like, really intense commitment and violence and abuse um, that, like, happens Like, oddly enough, I do have a personal story related to this where I wasn't, like, personally involved in this cult, but I did, like, in terms of innocuous-seeming ministries, when I was 15, I think, I went on a mission trip to Dallas through this group called um, Teen Mania Global Expeditions, and Teen Mania ran this thing called the Honor Society, which was an internship program for young adults that got sued and eventually closed down because of this lawsuit for being a cult-like and abusive area. Um, there was a part of the internship where they would have to go through an obstacle course. I forget what it's called. But basically, they had this training program that was literally modeled off of military boot camp. And <laughs> they would go through this obstacle course. And it was like this idea of like physical punishment and like spirituality being like intertwined and... I know that there's other stories of other groups very similar to that. Like, again, with the show doing this, like, big, like, things that are over the top and absurd and then honing it in. And it's like, actually, this is a real problem and, like, (laughs) has reverberating consequences. I think even just, like, within, like, regular sort of mainline churches, when you prioritize only the seasoned professionals are the ones who get to work with the adults and we're going to relegate all the inexperienced ministers to deal with the kids, mm-hmm. which are not going to be given priority in the same way. It's like you're creating this environment where your work is both devalued and not like the full impact of what you're doing isn't really like explained to you or made obvious to you Mm -hmm. because like that's 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 also part of like kelvin's complaint is that he's only ever going to be seen as like the youth pastor he doesn't want to he doesn't feel like he's being taken seriously he's not giving real authority so he's trying to escape that through the god squad but in the God Squad, he just creates conditions for the same kind of cult that you could establish with the children of your youth group. Because you are 
an inexperienced minister who seeks a lot of validation from this position and from the teenagers that you're in charge of. And then Mm -hmm. the teenagers are trying to look to you as a role model, but it's like, it just, it feeds into itself. Yeah. (laughs) That idea of like the youngest and most inexperienced are the ones that get to or have to deal with the youth is is one of the, again one of those things that's just like so much like more harmful as you look deeper into it not just for the ministers who might feel lesser and then there's these power things so it can create unhealthy power dynamics not only within church leadership but also on the kids itself where it's like those are the most vulnerable people in your congregation and because adults don't often don't take kids seriously they get it's like decided that, okay, well, you're the practice for like the real ministry. And then weird stuff happens. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad, I'm really glad that they didn't dive much further into that. There was like a moment where Kelvin has this like, okay, you have to go save the soul of this wayward teen um, for these like powerful donors in the family. And it was a good storyline. Um, for Kelvin and like exploring that relationship with like approval but I was nervous the whole time that it was going to turn into a creepy relationship because that's what happens some yeah sometimes you know I was like I was I was sitting there I was like please don't make this weird like it would make sense because you were talking about like all of these like fucked up things and like church dynamics and in like a whole bunch of people who are like super messed up. So it would like thematically kind of fit if they went down that path. Um, but I was really glad they didn't. But the fact that I was worried about it, <laughs> that like yeah. I was keeping my eye out. I was like, is he going to be a creepy youth pastor? Please don't be a creepy youth pastor. I feel like because Kelvin is so earnest they're they're probably going to explore that a little further in season 3 as he sort mm-hmm. of steps back into the role but i feel like any inappropriateness is more going to be just from like yeah you didn't really think through how to actually minister to children in effective ways that also keep everyone safe yeah so it's i think it's just going to be more like the situation is bad and like some iffy things happen because of it but not necessarily like i don't think it's in his character to be creepy on purpose no i agree with that i was it since season one like midway through season one when that happened so i was like are they going this way but i agree i think he's too earnest i think that it also as he steps into that if there's anything like that um i agree it'll be like having an awkward conversation about like celibacy or an awkward conversation about modesty where at youth group, you know, it'll be kind of yes. in those ways. <laughs> God. Yeah. I'm, I'm waiting for the, um, I'm waiting for the modest is hottest arc to modest really come hottest. in full swing. Cause these are, these are wealthy, fabulously dressed people. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's not as much a issue with them most of the time. No. Modest is hottest unless you're Keith. In which case, you can be mostly naked all of the time. Right, right. It's fine. It's, it, it's where he gets his. It's where he gets his power, <laughs> his spiritual power. <laughs> we didn't talk much about Gideon, did we? No, we didn't. Gideon 
I think he's also up there in terms of like this is like he's like the straight man to everyone else is crazy mm-hmm. to where he's like a reasonably mature and empathetic person and you look to him to see how a normal person would be responding in these situations. Yeah. And like he's, you know, I guess he's the person that we'll look to to see if Jesse is able to heal some of the generational traumas of fathers and sons in this family because like Gideon's whole arc is these phases of I want to leave my family behind but I'm always going to be a part of this family so how do I negotiate these two different directions I'm being pulled in how do I make sure that I'm like able to live my own life but also maintain ties to my family because I still want to have that positive relationship where I can but also my family is crazy I think a a line that highlights that really well is the very end of season two Jesse and Amber visit the movie set that Gideon's working on and they're like wow we've had this epiphany that even though you're not working at the church you're still our son and Gideon's like yes (laughs) I did not think differently was that a concern? <laughs> like <laughs> that one was that one hurt me a little bit. <laughs> that one, a little too close to home. Because <laughs> whenever I go back and visit my parents, and I'm just like waiting in the house by myself for six hours on Sunday, it's like, well, <laughs> I guess I'm still their child because I'm allowed to be here. But God, yeah. this is awkward. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I think that a season three has been confirmed already and I'm very excited to see what they do. Yes. Um I hope for some character growth in everyone, but not too much. Unless you're Keith and Kelvin, then you can have all the character growth. Um, you can but... you can grow and blossom as much as you want, babes. <laughs> the rest of you have to stay a little bit terrible though. Yes. We managed to avoid a lot of major spoilers for season two. I think so, so. Hopefully this doesn't impact your enjoyment of the show. We kept things vague enough for um, spoiler haters, I think. So if you're on the fence at all, give it a shot. Season one is like very solid. And if you like it, then season two delivers on all of that. Yeah. Um. So I think that about covers it. Do you have any closing thoughts? I think my main source of enjoyment on the show is just how deeply Southern everything is. Reminds me of home. But the one thing that did set me off was when Gideon said, oh, I'm going to go and film in Atlanta. And he pronounced it correctly. And then his mom, very mad, pronounced the T in Atlanta. I was like, who are you? Get your life together. It's Atlanta. 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 Please. (laughs) Stupid Yankees filming this show. Didn't do their research. That was the only thing that really felt inaccurate to me. That one tiny accent slip. But I'll let it slide. (laughs) I think a takeaway for me was I was just continually blown away by the little throwaway lines. Like we've talked about them. (laughs) 
we've talked about them like the my pillow line brilliant um <laughs> the oh one of my favorite lines from season one that got to me was when kelvin was being asked to go on the like assignment to save the soul of this 15 year old girl or whatever and he and his like promotion to the parents was like yeah i like connecting with the youths and his delivery on that line was spot on i laughed so hard i was like i have heard that phrase with that inflection countless times (laughs) the the youth leaders love connecting with the youths there's something so (laughs) specific about youth pastor energy that like if you can achieve it without actually being a youth pastor that's really impressive kevin devine nails his role oh yeah he really embodies it and the soundtrack goes hard there's Mm. this one song at the very end of i think season two episode four it's just a demo recorded by like a person working on the crew of the show and it is awesome it needs like a full production to like really go far but i love that song and there's a lot of like old country music, like classic mm-hmm. gospel hymns. It's great. I think they missed an opportunity to use plastic Jesus in <laughs> <laughs> in that one scene. You know the one I'm talking about. I I was like ninety nine percent sure that that was going to be the song, and then it was another song, and it fit well. And they had the little broken up plastic Jesus on the on the dashboard of the car. God. Uh, if I were to critique the soundtrack, that's my one critique. <laughs> they could have used Plastic Jesus. <laughs> Damn. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for tuning in to the first episode of Sacrilegiosity. We appreciate you making it this far. And yeah. tune in next time. Yeah. When we what? decide what our upload schedule is. <laughs> <laughs> In about two weeks, hopefully. About two weeks. Two weeks. Yeah, yeah. Keep your eyes on whatever podcasting app you use. Hopefully we'll be everywhere. So We, we will tweet about it as well, also. Yeah. So. Follow us on Twitter, at yes. SacrilegiosityPod. Uh, no, just Sacrilegiosity. Oh, just Sacrilegiosity. Follow us on Twitter, at Sacrilegiosity. Um, you could also find links to our personal Twitters um, at that handle. Um I'm A.M. underscore Dolan. And I am Wasp Palisades because I love Sufjan Stevens. Sufjan, (laughs) if you're listening, please. (laughs) I don't know what I want you to do. Just say hi, honestly. That's all I really want. We'll know we've made it when Sufjan Stevens hears an episode of of our pod. He's too good for this podcast and we understand. <laughs> keep keep up the keep up the cultural critiques, Sufian. We we love them. I loved your era of jumping into media crit. It was really fun. <laughs> and that closing message. Till next time. Till next time. <laughs>